public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. multiple award-winning show in our 13th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, I'm Roberta Radovich. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear about news and events of interest from the African American community perspective, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first, Memorialization describes how black American lives and events from the past have been preserved or not in the American memory, textbooks, statues, museums, etc. This concept raises the question of agency and who is writing and defining our history. In challenging the whitewash history still taught in schools, black memorials such as museums and statues seek to redefine and recast our history. Bloomington Notables, Professor Emeritus Audrey T. McCluskey, and former IU professor, playwright, and actor, Ms. Gladys Devane, are here to discuss memorialization and reclaiming public space, and also the role that such museums, such as the Smithsonian, have in preserving history and memory. There are now over 30 museums, 37 to be exact, Professor just shared with me, dedicated to doing that in the states across the United States. The National Museum of African American History and Culture is the pinnacle of that effort currently. We might add that the recent We might add that the recent construction of the National Museum for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, documents lynchings over 5,000 of them. I want to correct that. That museum is called the Equal Justice Initiative, and it is in Montgomery, Alabama, and it does document the lynchings, um, the corrective history. And now it's it's time to hear from these two distinguished ladies. Good evening. How are you doing this evening? It's cold and it's it's April. It reminds me of Detroit. That's why I didn't live in Detroit because the winters were really long. But uh, I'm moving back to my home state, Florida. Florida. Oh, lucky you. I'm not really, but I (laughs) (laughs) wish. We all wish we would be right now. Well, I want to go ahead and start um, with because we actually we we called the Equal Justice Initiative museum the national museum for peace and justice which i think is interesting right that's um and you made a really good point that the word lynching is not in a lynching memorial do you want to talk a little bit more about the significance of having the word either there or not there in terms of um you know that memorialization that corrective history well first of all the word is just such a loaded word that it would scare people away yeah (laughs) and so since this is a corrective and intervention into the so-called established history i think it was a initiative for justice and i think recognizing these victims of that horrific experience in african in, in in american life 
is one way to recast it and to reclaim the space that was usually a space of oppression and now it's a space of liberation and justice. Right. And so what do you, why is that important now? I mean, but it's always been important, mm-hmm. but this is the moment, and mm-hmm. there are so many kind of contrasting and counterpoints in terms of the way that history is being is being projected that we need to really to push back. So I, I can't imagine a, a better time to have this kind of reinsertion mm-hmm. of a black lens mm-hmm. on American history, because it is American history. Some people say black history, sure, but it's an American history from a black lens and perspective. Mm-hmm. Have you visited this museum? Or, this, ha- or did you just the, watch the, I didn't I watch, just, did you yeah. watch the um, special? And, and Brian Stevenson has been long, uh, uh, he's been fighting this fight for a long time, mm-hmm. so, but the museum doesn't open until later this month, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. In terms of, I, I saw clips of the 60 Minutes thing, I actually had to work on, on unfortunately, but there's a bit of a, a performative aspect to it where is the, the the pieces that i saw at least are um th- there's hanging pieces from the ceiling and they sort of shift along as you're you move through mm-hmm. the experience um without necessarily any of us seeing that display and being able to speak to it what's the importance of having that performative aspect or that Inter like that experiential aspect to reclaiming spaces and recasting spaces because they have been unnamed victims Mm -hmm. and each of those hanging uh, blocks of concrete represent a man or a woman or a child who was lynched yeah and with the name inscribed on it and so you can't experience it as abstract history Right. You experience it as a personal loss. This was a man, this was a woman, this was a child who was unfairly taken away. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I visited plenty of museums, and when I, when I saw the brief clip, I am not really sure that I'm that interested in going to the museum. Um, I have visited the museum on the, on the mall, and what I do like about that museum was that, yes, it talks about our history, our past, the, the darkness that was brought on to us, but it also talks about how we have survived and how mm-hmm. we've overcome. Mm-hmm. And it, there's a celebration, too. Mm-hmm. So do you know if there's some type of, because I, I, I visit lots of museums. Is there anything there that's worth celebrating to not overshadow the history because it's there, but to also bring in perspective how it um, makes us either resilient or what does it really do to make people not not think about the lynchings and the lost lives. I know they have a memorial for, I think it's at the spot where a lot of the Jews Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, there, there's like these these stones and the steps of the stones get bigger and bigger as you go through the maze and it portrays like all the the lives that were lost in the Nazi um, concentration. And I'm guessing it's something to, similar to that. But there has to be something else that draws people 
to this museum. I've been to the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham, and that is all the clips, all the different speeches of Martin Luther King, um, what um, actually the Black Panthers did and stood for and everything like that. But this needs to bring something else other than the sadness that the connotation of, even though you remove the word lynching, he said it in that piece. And Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, will people actually want to go and relive that story? That's an interesting question. I I have my thoughts on it because talking about the Smithsonian, the African-American National Museum, the Smithsonian, you begin in the slave ships. Exactly. You begin there. And so you cannot arise and ascend as you go up the ladder or ascend up the other levels of the five-story building until you experience that. So I'm not sure how they're going to execute it, Mm -hmm. but that's a beginning point. The fact that it's named Institute of Justice, Initiative for Justice. So I'm hoping that there is some resolution Mm -hmm. at the end. But since we've not been there, we don't know. (laughs) We'll see how he executes that. Some transcendent Mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. I I understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dr. Devane, how, how do you feel about the whitewashing of our history and how do you think it could be um, preserved or even how we can look at it? Well, I am not familiar with well, the museum that you are talking about. Mm-hmm. I did visit the um, uh, Smithsonian mm-hmm. and as everyone who has visited that museum I think it's done a magnificent job of telling our history the way it should, a non-whitewashed history. Mm -hmm. And it also has done a wonderful job, as she was saying a minute ago, of with each level you know you go down to the bottom you start with the in the belly of the of the ships that transported us here by the time you get to the top level you see all of the contributions that we have made in spite of everything that that was done Mm -hmm. to us Uh, and I think that's that's quite uplifting Um, you leave there really feeling inspired Um, I, historically, it's it's common knowledge that you know, our history has been whitewashed, swept under the rug. Um, I, I do storytelling in, in the public schools quite often, and I am amazed at what the children don't know about black history, um, about slavery, uh, about uh, the civil rights movement, and... Uh, I do think those stories need to be told, mm-hmm. but also as a storyteller and as an actress, I also know that it's very important that you don't leave your audience at that level that's so low that they cannot you know, rise above it. One of the things that I strive for in writing stories is to end that story with mm, something that's uplifting in spite of all of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite necessary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead. My comment on that, and it really goes well with, with what uh, Dr. Devane had said, 
is that because we see this contestation of space, you know, I mean, the, the, the Confederate monuments that come down, you know. But the North won the war, but I think the South won the narrative. Mm-hmm. So by that, I mean that the schools, you know, are teaching a very whitewashed history now. We've had incidents in this own community, you know, and in textbooks that I read growing up, it was whitewashed to the extent of saying it was a war between the states rather than a war to end slavery or a civil war. So I think the South won the narrative, although the North won the war. And so we are fighting to kind of regain some of what was lost in that kind of shifting because most of these monuments didn't go up right after the Civil War. They went up much later Mm -hmm. at the time, the height of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And so that public space is a space that we are trying to reclaim, not only with these museums, but with other kinds of acknowledgments of the black presence, which has been undoubtedly the most effective way in which we look at American culture. I mean, you can't go anywhere without looking at African-American culture, but it's a part of American culture. Yeah. And that oftentimes is underplayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think you've I've heard you talk and teach on this whether you were talking about it in terms of art history or history in general or um, Black women's history and mm-hmm. the history of education that there is a there is the public spaces become places to make public the story of African-American contribution as well as oppression or marginalization and that those spaces are really important to bring that story out front and center. And so that museums get to be a place to push back on the Mm -hmm. narratives that are in the history books currently. I know when my daughter was coming up, I really had to push on the teacher because they wanted the children to come up with all the reasons that maybe um, the Civil War took place and wanted the children to leave out slavery. (laughs) And And I just thought, this is crazy. How can you begin to even try to promote? But what it was, was trying to remove a certain kind of history. Well, I call that malpractice history. (laughs) Definitely. But the importance of the museums. And Professor, do you want to talk a little bit more about um, the role specifically of the National Museum, this national narrative? Yeah, the National Museum is unique because it's the first time that we've had a national museum, as you as you said at the very beginning, we have museums every not everywhere, but in thirty uh, different states, and that's good. That's quite an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. The Underground Railroad, the Museum of the Underground Railroad in Cincinnati is mm-hmm. is fabulous. Is, have any of you you've been I've there? Been. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and and there are just the Civil Rights Museum that you mm-hmm. you mentioned. So there, right. but this one is on the National Mall, right. mm-hmm. and it had to be an act of Congress. In order to make this, in order to make, and George Bush, bless him, he did sign it Mm -hmm. (laughs) after it was passed. And that was 2003. Mm -hmm. And so that's lightning speed from 2003 to it open in 2016, in September. That's lightning speed, you know, because the government didn't pay for it. There was a partnership. I mean, they had to raise gazillion dollars. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Oprah. Yes, thank you. Thank you, (laughs) thank you, you many people. Uh, So to make that happen, just just, that makes it a singular 
achievement. Yeah, yeah. And have you been to the museum? Yeah. Dr. Yes, Devane's? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And yes. what I want to know from um, an artist's perspective, both of you are academics, but also artists, from an artistic experience, what was it like to move, to walk into that space that was very intentionally thought about? Mm-hmm. My My first reaction when I, my first reaction when I, we drove up in the, in the taxi and got out and you're looking at this huge building. And I said to the woman with me, it looks like a ship. Mm-hmm. And it, it really, to me, it looked like a ship. And at the very top level, there's this little window that looked like one of the I don't know what you call them on the ship, the little... Mm. And I was, that first, the, 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 the only thing I could think of was the slave ships mm-hmm. and how much this, this structure reminded me of the slave ships. And then you walk into the lobby and just hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, trying to get in, uh, all ages, lots of young children. And I thought, this is wonderful. And then you get on the elevator mm-hmm. and the descent, and on the side of the walls, as you descend, you see the years descending with you mm. until you get down mm. to like the 1600s mm. and you th- and it was it really gave you that feeling that you were going back in time and it it had quite the effect yeah. quite the effect do you think um museums this museums need to do a better job of including just regular museums of african american history because yes this is on the mall now and it's accessible to everybody all over the world Mm -hmm. but when someone why is it that and people do it all people do it where they have museums that connotate their history but as a museum goer I think a museum should encompass everything Mm -hmm. about when you go to a, a museum in Indiana it should talk about Indiana history not just certain parts of history what do you think about museums needing to do w- better jobs? It's an, that's an easy question. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, that's a really important question. It is important. It's an ongoing struggle. Yeah, just when we started Black Studies, not we because I wasn't there, but I'm a recipient of it. Uh, there was this question about now, nah, what about white studies? You know, or what about? In other words, that you can't do both. You can't. Walk and chew gum. (laughs) (laughs) We can do both. We need to be have more inclusive history, but we also need to have the lens of different people who have made America what it is, Mm -hmm. and that's where the African American experience is so exotic, so special. In fact, one of the one of the battles, one of the battles we are presently engaged in is trying to get the um, Monroe County. History uh, Center mm-hmm. uh, to include more African American history. Mm-hmm. There, you know, you walk in and th- 
it's, it's like, like we don't it's exist. It's like we, a, we, we were not a part of mm-hmm. Monroe County. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you say things like in the first land sale here in Monroe County, two African-American men purchased lots. I mean, you, you don't. It's like you know, Monroe County just right. was void of all mm-hmm. you know, uh, African-American interaction. And even I'd lived here, I've lived here for quite some time, and it wasn't until we did the, re- the play Resilience and, and re- researched Indiana history that I realized what a big part we had in history right here in Monroe County, but it's not recorded. I mean, it's not a part of our regular teaching. Um, I, we want to just take a moment and uh, before we continue on in this conversation, thank Dr. Gladys Devane and uh, Dr. Audrey T. McCluskey for joining us and continuing this conversation with us. I want to ask you, I want to go back to you, Dr. Devane, about the, the, the Monroe County uh, Historical Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miss Liz Taylor was uh, Mitchell, excuse mm-hmm. me. Miss Liz Mitchell was just here recently, sharing with us a little bit about the um, the bicentennial initiative mm-hmm. that they are going around. There's a, a gentleman that's kind of an archivist assigned mm-hmm. to this project, mm-hmm. and they're going around the Hoosier State and really collecting both material culture as well as the stories. And those things are going to be coming together into a conversation that you and Miss Mitchell mm-hmm. are are creating. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Are you? Well, that's an, a, an upcoming show that's yes. already been written, and we're in the process now of tweaking it for staging. Mm-hmm entitled Stories of Monroe. Stories of Monroe. Uh-huh. Stories of Monroe. Uh, and it is written in and performed in celebration of Monroe County's bicentennial. Mm-hmm. And we are telling our stories. It's starting with the Underground Railroad and um, the, the, the part that Monroe County played. Mm-hmm. And Mon- uh, the Underground Railroad came right through Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And we had slave catchers right on the square. Right. Uh, and we are telling those stories both from the abolitionist uh, um, perspective and also from uh, the slave catchers uh, our perspective. Mm. And how the Fugitive Slave Act influenced what was going on right here in Monroe, in Monroe County, mm. in Bloomington. Wow. Um, and the blacks that were a part of that. I think that really dovetails very well onto what we began to talk about, the public square and the public space. Mm-hmm. Because when African Africans were brought to this country, they were put on the public square to be sold. Now there's a museum starting in Charleston, and Charleston was a main port for the importation mm-hmm. of, of enslaved people, and there's going to be a museum there in that space. So that's a reclaiming of the public space. But even after enslavement was over, policing became tied to the way in which you contain the black body. And that has continued as we see today. So blacks were not allowed to be in the public square even after they were free. They could be arrested for loitering. Right, right. And then you have the convict lease system, which kind of reimposed slavery. You arrest them, and then you make them work for free as uh, prisoners. Mm -hmm. And so that's so much tied to today and what we are seeing about policing and and the angst that we feel about the police 
being used as an arm of repression and of the state. Right, right. So this is really tied history, and sometimes we kind of disjoin it and say one doesn't relate, but it's a clear line. You can, the police were an instrument of the state in terms of terrorizing blacks. Right. And these things are not happening in a vacuum. They're not happening. Right. Just the other day, you probably saw the viral video of the two young men in Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Yes, in Philly. And that's policing used Mm -hmm. for those kinds of purposes. Mm -hmm. So it's very much connected history. And I think we need to connect the dots and Mm -hmm. see that we are still in this in this struggle. I think what's exciting for me as a young person, kind of touching on what Elliot mentioned before, I remember very clearly watching the live stream um, when the National Museum opened up one of its very first sort of public live stream opportunities. And Mr. Lonnie Bunch, the historian who's running the museum, um, said so very clearly that if museums are not addressing oppression and these kinds of oppression, discrimination, bigotry, police brutality, all the all these issues that are sort of on we're heightened awareness with right now, that if the museums, cultural spaces are not addressing these things. And I think that's a real valuable contribution of the Black Museum movement. Yes. Because they are becoming more interactive. I mean, right. when you were a kid, you know, you didn't want to go to a museum. It was just one of those quiet places. That <laughs> but the National Museum is just so full of activity yes. and movement mm-hmm. and good food. <laughs> yeah, greens are good. Uh, great, great, good greens, greens, greens Cajun good. rice. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's all there. So it's interactive. Mm-hmm. And that kind of redefines what a museum actually is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder if the, the National Museum will kind of create a groundswell of interest in some of the sm- what we would consider the smaller museums. Now that we have that one. Now yeah, that we have that one, but uh, of, of interest across color lines. Oh, yeah. One of the things, and, and you probably saw this too, Dr. Devane, that I would say, and this is my rough estimate, that you saw all races of people there. You know, it was majority black, but everybody is welcome. Because yeah. that's one of the questions that I, I got in black studies. Can white people take black studies? I mean, <laughs> come yes, on. Yes. But and so it's the same kind of idea. So everybody is welcome because everybody needs this history. Right. It's not just black history. It's American history. No, it's American history. From a black lens. From a black lens being mm-hmm. reinserted, rec- reclaimed, recast. Exactly. But as we're talking about the whitewashing, um, why don't you touch upon the mural? That's in Woodburn Hall? Oh, that is a perennial. (laughs) That's a perennial. Yeah, I mean, I've been here about 20 years. Right. So, you know, at least three outbreaks of (laughs) student activism around that. And hopefully it's resolved now. But my my idea is that you don't, just like with the Confederate monuments, Mm -hmm. I don't want them in the public square, but I do think that people who love these should be able to put them wherever they want. They just shouldn't have to put them in my neighborhood or put them where I can have to see them unless, unless they correct, they correct the history with actually inscriptions that said what these people did. Mm-hmm. So if they're there, and, and also if they put up more Harriet Tubman's, mm-hmm. and they, in other words, you don't have to have this bait. We can have both, but they have to correct it. Mm-hmm. Where, where where do they belong then? 
where do and, I would let why, them why decide you, why don't that. you explain what I'm actually talking about to the viewers out here there's a mural in Woodburn Hall that's right that go ahead and I took classes in that room and I'm quite familiar with it <laughs> It displays the history of Indiana. Right. Is that not correct? That's correct. Yes, it is. From oh. the very beginning all the way up to a given point. Right. And the part of that uh, mural that the students were reacting to was the lynching, the, you know, the, that was a part of Indiana's history. Right. And I don't think you can selectively say, I'm not going to put this up because it might offend someone. That's a part of our history. And we need to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that was the ugly. And I think it needs to stay there. I agree with that. I definitely agree with it. And who are we raising? We, we, our kids should be strong enough. Think about the, the, the kids at, at uh, Central High School. Think of what they had to face. And all you have to do is look at a, a, a painting on the wall. I mean, they had people throwing spit at them and rocks and everything. And so I, I think we have to be stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, I, the, the image of a clan you know, on a wall is much better than actually dealing with those neo-Nazis down there in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. So I just think we need to be more resilient in our resistance mm -hmm. and, and not be intimidated by the, the facts of history mm -hmm. because... Uh, Hart Benton was actually very much uh, against yes. everything that that stood for. Yes. And so we need to put it in context. It's, again, an absence of context. The, the absence of context. And yeah. that's what I was saying, making that kind of jump to the uh, southern statues, the Confederate statues. Mm -hmm. It's okay to celebrate Robert E. Lee, but just tell who he was and what he tried to preserve. Right. And all these tell both guys. sides, tell it. not yeah, tell just it. Right. the side that you want to celebrate. We want to tell it. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And Indiana University ultimately showed it's, it's as you said before, it's a, it's a recurring conversation among the students. I think it's at a particularly feverish pitch right now, considering the considering, social media yes. culture that we yeah. live in. And so I think the university did the right thing and decided that that is not a classroom mm -hmm. space. Um, that students shouldn't have to necessarily, or students and instructors shouldn't necessarily need to navigate the context. Right. And, or, it's very you know, charged. It's so very I, charged. I think that was a good de good decision. Yeah. 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 So in doing that. And so we are just we're winding down our time here a little bit. Do you have some last ideas or challenges for our listeners, Professor McCluskey? Well, I just want to encourage everyone, regardless of your race, your identity, whoever, to try to see this museum. Mm -hmm. it, is, it stands out. It's spectacular. It's wonderful. I've been there twice, three times, actually, but once before it opened, and I still haven't exhausted it. Mm -hmm. That's what I was wondering is, is it something you can so do in a day? So it's a return day? trip. It's yeah. a return trip. <laughs> right, but I've been there twice and then th yeah. there's still a lot to see. Mm -hmm. It's um, the most detailed uh, explanation about history that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Excellent. It was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. And what about the new museum? What would you say about people that are interested or a little hesitant about the new museum that's opening up in Montgomery? I can't speak to more than I've said because I haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. 
but I know Brian Stevenson's work and what he's trying to do, and I know he's a very, uh, very accomplished mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I would give him, the, I would trust him to do the right thing about it, and I certainly would see it. Mm-hmm. And in our last minute, I might be putting you on the spot a little bit. You've done that before. (laughs) (laughs) Outside of the National Museum, which I know is very close to your heart, um, are there a couple of other museums you'd like to give a shout out to that? Well, I mentioned the uh, Museum of the Underground Railroad, which uh, faces the Ohio River, which was the the vehicle to freedom Mm -hmm. for enslaved people who came over that river from Kentucky Mm -hmm. to uh, Ohio, Mm -hmm. land of freedom. Okay. In quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Or Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's one, but that's there, one. there are others. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Devane. We are so excited to hear, to, to see the collective effort of the Bicentennial Initiative to bring that African-American Hoosier perspective and history um, and another resilient like mm-hmm. <laughs> production. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for being with us and providing us with some context so that when our listeners do go to visit these museums, we've got some food for thought, some things to be thinking about. So thank you so much. Take your gym thank shoes. You. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All righty. That was a good question. The time passed. Okay, we'd like to thank Dr. McCluskey and Dr. Devane for joining us this evening to discuss memorialization and reclaiming public space, and also the role that museums such as the Smithsonian, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and the recently constructed, um, what did we decide, the National Museum for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. It's actually called the the uh, social, it's called the in, the Justice Initiative, excuse me. We'll give you the website for that when we close the show tonight. Okay, Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB, or you can always visit the WFHB news website at WFHB.org news.
Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an independent online music magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, the environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and a sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. And from Bikesmith's Bicycle Shop. Established in 1975, 
Bike Smiths sells Cannondale and Giant bicycles, services all makes, and provides accessories. Open every day. A half block south of the courthouse and a half block east of the B line at 112 South College. Now back to today's edition of Bring It On. You just heard Night and Day from Michelle and Dago Cello's Ventriloquism. It was actually a I'll Be Sure cover, so that was track two called Night and Day from Ventriloquism by Michelle and Dago Cello. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Leela Randall. And I'm Roberta Radovich. It's time now to give you the latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting black community. Okay, what do we got going up here, going on here? Uh, since we talked about the Starbucks earlier with the doctors present, let's, let's get right into that one. Um, Nigel Roberts of News One writes that black folks rejected Starbucks' apology over the racist arrest of two black men Thursday at a Philadelphia store and continued their call for a boycott of the coffee chain. Mobile phone video shows at least six Philadelphian police officers arresting two seated black men has gone viral. They were reportedly waiting for a man identified as Andrew Yafe to discuss a business deal. A Starbucks employee called the officers because the two black men were going what were doing what scores of people do at Starbucks, using the coffee shop as a meeting place without making a purchase. Yafe arrived as the police officers put the men who were not being disruptive or confrontational in handcuffs for trespassing. The official comment read, We regret that our practices and training led to the re- reprehensible outcome at our Philadelphia store. We're taking immediate action to learn from this and be better. Philadelphia's Mayor Jim Kinney also dismissed Starbucks' apology, underscoring that calling the police in that situation appeared to exemplify what racial discrimination looks like in 2018. Kenny hit the nail on the head with the statement, For many, Starbucks is not just a place to buy coffee, but a place to meet up with friends or family members or to get some work done. Like all retail establishments in our city, Starbucks should be a place where everyone is treated the same no matter the color of the skin. Indeed, even Starbucks acknowledged that people use its coffee shops as a community hub, according to the Washington Post. It has become a place where people drop in for the free Wi-Fi or meet friends without ordering anything. That, however, apparently doesn't apply to black people and Roberto how do you feel about this oh that is just it just breaks my heart because like you just read there it's Starbucks (laughs) (laughs) what else is it for it's the unofficial business office (laughs) it's everybody's unofficial business but what do you think about the boycott are you boycotting the very um, non-descriptive taste of their coffee? And I'm not trying to, um, I, I'm not a, um, I, now I do like their blondes, their blonde coffee blends because mm-hmm. I, I'm, I brew my own, I, I do my own beans and I do the whole nine yards. The only thing I don't have is the where it drips from the cup and not that automatic percolator drip stuff. So um, what do you think about um, actually boycotting Starbucks for their indiscretion, their indiscretion in this store? So I don't know what you think, but my, I have very mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, money talks, right? And solidarity is important and standing together to withhold <laughs> our resources to make a statement is really, really important. But at the same time, it's 
is it sustainable and will does it ultimately address the longer the bigger issues right and and how long can i actually abstain from being at the Starbucks, my <laughs> other official office. So, you know, I, I don't say that lightly, but I, I, I realize that people have probably very mixed feelings about it. What do you think? Um, I, I listened to the CEO this morning on ABC, um, mm-hmm. Good Morning America, and he pointed out a couple things that I thought would be at least a start to get the wrong right there and he wanted to include the people that um, it happened to and include them into their training efforts and find out from them what they thought that Starbucks could do better so when he added that little bit of caveat like I said I am not an official Starbucks goer like my daughter who gets the points and goes every chance that she she can Mm -hmm. Um, not for the coffee but the refreshers which I think is a sweetened Kool-Aid but anyway I digress (laughs) um (laughs) So I think that, yes, their first attempt was lame, but I think after a little bit of reflection and their second attempt this morning with Mm -hmm. the CEO is a good indication that um, they acknowledge that they were it was a wrong move on the employees part and that they are going to it it is a bigger issue than just, um, um, you know, whether or not we need to boycott or not is is the issue is and it is in their training and it is how their employees right. look at customers because obviously and to me you know um, I'm not suggesting that what she did was wrong but I'm suggesting that her assessment of the situation was off agreed why it was off just because i think one had braids and they had on big jackets and gym shoes you know she's got that stereotype of what black men do when they look like that suspicious um so that 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 type of assessment was wrong so they do need to take a look at their employees but agreed agreed okay i have another uh article here that's actually kind of cool um Black Principal Creates Business That Merges Travel and Education in in Developing Countries. At Destination Tech, we believe that diversifying travel cohorts allows for pertinent cross-cultural dialogue and presents a more realistic representation of America to global communities, says Shandell Stone, the creator of Destination Teach. The News One staff reports that a black Harvard graduate has found a way to turn her passion for traveling the globe and giving back into a business. Shandell Stone created Destination Teach, a program that promotes education and developing countries around the world, Black Enterprise reported. Launched in 2014, Destination Teach takes people of color on excursions that merge cultural exploitation, exploration and education, the news outlet writes. During the eight-day trips, travelers serve as guest teachers at schools. Destination Teach also partners with schools in underserved and underdeveloped countries to provide students with supplies and scholarships. Stone, a Bronx principal, has led trips to places that include Haiti, Nairobi, and Morocco. Education still remains a pressing issue in developing countries, especially in parts of Africa. Only, this is a quote from the article in News One, only 30 to 50% of secondary school age children are attending school, while only 7 to 
23% of tertiary school age youth are enrolled. This varies by sub-region, with the lowest levels being in Central and Eastern Africa and the highest enrollment levels in Southern and Northern Africa. Often in Africa, decisions to educate children are made within the context of discriminatory social institutions and cultural norms that may prevent young girls or boys from attending school. I think that's amazing that an, a, a young woman from Harvard, given all the opportunities that she might have presented to her in terms of having currency coming from an Ivy League, has chosen to give back in this helping create global citizens. Uh, I, I totally agree, but I think we need to be careful about um, when we talk about 30 to 50 percent of secondary schools and children and 23 percent. Um, I know a lot of these areas are very, um, what do you call it, agriculturally mm -hmm, based. Right. And if you're an agriculturalist, culturally based you learn things um because you have to grow good point <laughs> what, what's happening i mean you have a garden to grow or this is how your parents are earning a living and you're doing what you need to do right. i just think that that might not be a value like it's a value to us and so you have to be careful about judging africa and whether or not they're being educated or not because i'm sure they're being educated to do what they need to do and that's okay mm-hmm that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, here we go. Talking about Ben Carson, our okay. like our favorite resident black person. <laughs> ben Carson tells black women to escape poverty. She needs to get married. What an interesting statement. Um, I'm not sure if that's really the case, but let's hear. Let's listen to Ben's thoughts because we have to follow the trail right here. Parker Riley at News One writes in his commentary that Ben Carson is doing his best to make people forget he is unqualified to be the secretary of the Department of um, Housing and Urban Development. He can do nothing to make us not remember that he's not qualified. But anyway, from the beginning, his mission appears to be to prevent low-income people from obtaining fair housing. For example, Carson has blocked an Obama-era small area. Of um, fair market rent rule, which would give low-income people better access to schools and jobs, a, a mandate that was uh, supposed to go into effect on January 1st. He also wants to kick people out of HUD if they don't work a requirement of 32 hours per week, regardless of if there's are little to no jobs in the area, if the jobs are paying a starvation wage, or if the job is only 20 hours a week. Of course, he famously said that people are too comfortable in poverty. Carson appears too comfortable at HUD with a 31,000 office dining room set. As we digress, his family alleges too involved in HUD and employees filing lawsuits against him. Against him. That said, in a clear effort to clean up his heartless image, on Tuesday, April 10th, Carson visited Winridge Elementary in Mississippi, Tennessee. He met with a woman named Shaquilla Boyd, who was once homeless with her child and was saved because of HUD programs, more likely the HUD programs under the Obama administration. According to Fox 13 in Memphis, she said, I'm going back to school now and everything. Boyd said through tears while holding her daughter, Kiana, I have a house. They helped me to get jobs and I'm doing better now. Carson responded to Shaquilla's story. He believed the way to stop poverty is for people to get married. Number one, finish high school. Number two, get married. Number three, wait until you're married to have children. Carson said, just those three things and you're 2% less likely to live in poverty. Like I said, his ideas are very convoluted and I really like to follow the, the train of thought where he's leading, but they never lead to anywhere. So that's why I don't even follow any longer. I don't know how do you feel about Ben Carson, but 
the sooner he's out of there. I mean, just because you're black does not mean that, and, and it's labeled HUD, and they assume that black people are in HUD, which I'm sure the percentage is probably a lot greater for non-whites than it is for blacks, that a black person should run an organization. And I've never heard that just because you're black, you're qualified to run what you would consider a black organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, they told me to cut. Yes. That was a look <laughs> at African-American headlines from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think about current black issues. Send your comments to bring it on at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I am Roberta. And I'm Leela Randall, the very talkative one. Um, you're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org. You just heard Waterfalls, track four, again from Michelle and Dago Cello from Ventriloquism. Again, Waterfalls from Michelle and Dago Cello. Now it's time to bring you events of interest in the black community. For Bring It On, I am Roberta Radovich. And I'm Leela Randall. And up first, um, there's a black barbershop talk. Um, 2018. It's going to be this Thursday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Hoosier Barbershop on 908 North Walnut. They're going to talk about um, fate. The um, topic is fade into wellness. And there's going to be someone there um, talking about and discussing diabetes, blood pressure, body mass index screenings, mental health, health coverage assistance, spinal health screening, stress management and meditation, HIV and AIDS education. So men, get out there. I know maybe it'll be better if you're with other men to um, discuss these topics. 
All right, and then over at Indiana University, the African American Arts Institute will present its African American Choral Ensemble Spring Concert on Saturday, April 28th, 2018 at 8 p.m. at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater. For information about ticket prices and to secure your ticket today, please go to um, box office at buzzkirkchumley.org. Again, that's box office, one word, at buzzkirkchumley, one word, dot O-R-G. You can call the box office um, about tickets, too, at area code 812-323-3020. Again, that's 812-323-3020. A little bit about the African American Choral Ensemble. The critically acclaimed African American Choral Ensemble presents its 43rd spring concert on the 28th. It's inspirational, uplifting, and transformative, and it has what audiences describe as magnificent. So again, if you want to enjoy a little culture and hear from the magnificent multicultural ensemble, that will be on Saturday, April 28th at Buzzkirk Chumley. If you have an event or, or happening in the African-American community you, you, we should know about, please send the info directly to Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about the calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to thank Dr. Dr. Audrey T. McCluskey and Dr. Gladys Devane for joining us this evening to discuss memorialization and reclaiming public space, and also the role that museums such as the Smithsonian, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, as well as the recently constructed memorial on lynching, which I have the actual name of that museum to share. That is called the Equal Justice Initiative. And you can learn about that that museum by going to your website and typing in eji.org. eji.org for the Equal Justice Initiative. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with the help of WFHB News Director um, Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Chris Martin. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Ifiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Leela Randall. And I'm Roberta Radovich. Tune in next Monday, April 23rd at 6 p.m. to bring it on for another exciting show right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.